Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, welcome to the final weekly roundup of 2022. And I had to record this one over the course of a couple of different days because I got family staying with me for the New Year's. So this one's going to be a little bit weird. It's still sponsored by JLC PCB, but I didn't have time to do the final assembly video. So I'm just going to skip that this week and go uh, continue that next week right where we left off. And also I recorded this early, so I missed Lou's weekly Mr. Updates, so we'll just give Lou a shout out later, and I'll still point you to his channel. But let's jump in and see what we've been going on that I was able to get into this roundup. First up, pre-orders are now open for a brand new Virtual Boy game called Virtual Warzone. It's a wireframe tank game, and this is the game that I talked about a couple of months ago that was funded solely by all of the profits that Kevin Malott made from selling things like the ROM carts and extension cables and all of those awesome accessories that I've been talking about over the past couple of years. And there are a few different ways to purchase the game. You can get a complete in-box version with the box, cartridge, and manual for $150. There's also a dust cover on that as well, just the little thing that snaps onto the bottom. You can get a cart plus dust cover only version for 100, so that's just basically a cartridge only version. And after everything ships, a ROM only version will be available for 40, and a ROM will also be distributed to anybody who purchases the complete in box versions, which is pretty awesome as well. I don't know about all of you, but for me personally, and I know I'm weird, but I would still want to buy the complete box version if I was a collector and I'd want it up on my shelf, but I'd also just want the ROM on my ROM cart, so I wouldn't even have to worry about it. Uh, so uh, if the game is due to ship this spring, and it is compatible with a couple of other pretty interesting things that are Virtual Boy Homebrew related, such as the link cable for Versus Play and the new Rumble Pack that Kevin Malott had just released. So this really highlights everything that's awesome about the Virtual Boy Homebrew scene. It's, uh, you know, it's being made by Team VU Engine. Uh, I think that's how you say it. And it really looks awesome. It sounds good. And it takes advantage of all of the cool stuff that's been going on in the scene. And this is a bold statement. All of, many of you might disagree with this, but I personally think a lot of the newer homebrew that's been released for Virtual Boy is better than like 90% of the official Virtual Boy library. It's not a dig 
to the virtual boy. I'm just saying, I love what people in the scene have been doing. And if you want to know more about the different stuff that's available, please check out the live stream I did with Kevin and don't be intimidated by the length of it. The first 15 minutes goes through the accessories and then the rest of it is just gameplay footage, just kind of show you, showing everybody some good retail and homebrew games as well. I probably should cut that one up and just make it into its own standalone video, but not enough hours in the day, right? So if you're interested in Virtual Warzone, as well as all the other awesomeness that Virtual Boy has to offer these days, please check out the post. So Crix, Tian Fong, and I spent a few more days testing the RGB blaster, and we found some other pretty interesting info. But I have to start by saying, if you did the fix we showed last week, leave it alone. It's totally fine. It's totally safe. This is just possibly a little bit easier for people. It still requires swapping out SMB components, so maybe not. And we think that we found a pretty cool tweak for the brightness as well. So I'll walk through it really quick. If you don't have an RGB blaster, you can skip to the next section. If you've already done last week's fix, I don't know, maybe stick around for the brightness part, but you don't need to at all. What we talked about last week is perfect. This is just a different way to go about it. And probably what I would recommend because it is a little bit easier. But what you're gonna wanna do is take the front cover off of the RGB blaster and swap out a few things. Now, please excuse the horrendous work in this picture, but uh, also keep in mind that I'd spent days swapping components on and off of this thing, which is why a lot of this stuff looks sloppy. This is not how they shipped. But first, you're going to want to replace the resistor up top with one that's 470-ish ohms. All I had was a 430 and it's fine. Crick's offered, or Crick suggested 220 ohms. He's not wrong at all, but I'm kind of looking at this from the perspective of, I would rather give you advice and be wrong with the, the final consequences being you need to use a lower value resistor, which is annoying, but zero chance of damage. Whereas if you use the 220, there is potential for compatibility and weirdness issues. Not normal, but what if you had one of those cables from 10 years ago with an LM1881 in it, and you put it through a low... Uh, low quality SCART switch with a second LM1881 in it, you might start to send a higher voltage down. And while it's incredibly unlikely, I like to err on the side of caution and I'm totally okay if I'm wrong about that. Uh, so choose whichever one you prefer, but I do have scope plots to prove everything that I'm saying. This isn't just a stab in the dark here. So swapping that resistor out with, uh, I used 430 and it was perfect. Uh, 470 is fine. 330, 370 might be fine as well. Uh, then when you, after you're done with that, jump these two pins together in the center. Now, my reasoning for using the wire last week is long and complicated and ends in, unless, I mean this respectfully, unless you do something incredibly stupid with your setup, you don't need to worry about it. I don't mean to be rude. I'm just saying, if you're plugging a well-built Genesis 2 cable or HD Retrovision, Rad 2X, whatever, into this thing, you have zero things to worry about. If you have some crazy, strange setup that does things that you're not supposed to do, this might be an issue, but really it's not at all. And to be honest, if you if you wired your setup so weird that this would be a problem, you're going to have other issues anyway. So just jump those together. That was Crix's solution. Uh, I I kind of hesitated, but he's right. That's the better way to do it. It's easier. Uh, it doesn't require crazy skills or soldering a tiny wire. And it looks better because you don't have a wire bodge, which is kind of funny because anybody that works on Sega consoles knows they're just filled with factory bodges, but whatever. So that's pretty much it. Now, 
There is one more tweak for the brightness that that Crix had figured out and both T and I had verified. And I think that this one is good, but I just want to take a moment to explain it. So what this will do is increase all of the voltage on all of the output pins. Not a lot, you know, not, not dangerously, but that does also mean that the voltage on the sync line will be a little bit higher. So even if the brightness is totally fine in your setup, maybe you're just going to turn up your TV's brightness a notch or two. If you do the 430 ohm or 470 or whatever sync mod and suddenly your RGB blaster doesn't sync anymore, try the brightness mod as well. Or if you just want to not have to turn up the brightness and all you'd have to do is kind of right by where the sync uh, sync resistor is. If you go down underneath the ADV chip to the one labeled 680, if you swap that out as well, then you should be fine. Uh, and that would make the brightness brighter, uh, to more correct, certainly not over the limit. And if you had any sync issues at all, that should clear it up. And this also would produce what I think would be the right voltage to aim for in a scenario like this. If you have an oscilloscope and the 240p test suite with the all-white screen, you could tweak this to the levels that I did, but you definitely don't need to. You could use that same 430 or 470 ohm resistor, so swap the 680 with 430 or 470. Um, I used a 330 because I had a scope to double check, and what I ended up doing was dialing in perfect voltages for everything. You don't need to worry about that, though. Just throwing in a 430 or should be fine. But should you do choose to uh, to tweak it, I was able to get 290 milli yeah 290 millivolts on the C-Sync output using a properly built Genesis 2 cable and 490 on the composite output, which is not composite video. It's just sync over that, which is great. And for the brightness, I was able to dial in exactly 700 millivolts on all three lines by using that. Now, just once again, keep in mind that my Famicom seems to be on the dimmer side and all of these consoles have a wide range of tolerance. So if you use a 330 like I did, yours might be too bright. Probably not send too much voltage too bright, but washed out. So if you don't have a scope, stick with 430, 470. I am 99.99999% confident that that's all that you would need based on these scope readings and everything else. If you do have a scope, and especially if you know you're only going to be using it on one or two Famicoms, if you want to be nerdy and tweak it, cool. If not, just don't bother and don't worry about it. Maybe just verify afterwards. What you do want to look for is if you do this and it goes over 714 millivolts up to about a volt, you start to get the image washed out and you lose detail. So that's what you're trying to avoid. Over a volt, you start to get a little bit dangerous, but I don't, I don't think that would be easy to do in this scenario, you know, unless you jump the pin together and don't use a resistor at all. But you know, I'm kind of over explaining just to make sure everybody feels confident in doing this mod, knowing that they don't really have to worry. But honestly, all I'm really saying is if you want to replace the top resistor and the bottom resistor, the, four, the one marked 47 and 680 with a 430, jump the middle pins together, and this should be perfectly fine on every Famicom. It should fix your RGB blaster, and that's all you would need to know. So thanks again to Crix for doing this, uh, for taking the time to tweak this. Yeah, it was a mistake, but you know what? I think, in my very strong opinion, you need to look at how Crix handled this. Crix didn't say, this is your fault, this doesn't matter, this is bullshit. Crix said, okay, how do we fix it? And then spent like two days with us trying to get not only the fix, but the most tweaked fix possible. So 
you know, if you are mad about this, that's fine. You have every right to be, but I kind of see both sides of this. I see it from the consumer's point of view and from the developer's point of view. And, you know, I just got to praise Crix for stepping up and, and really coming up with a great fix. And most importantly, this was a very small batch. Every batch from now on will have these fixes implemented. So you never have to worry about this again. So I'm calling this one a win with a little bit of a bump in the road, but, you know, feel free to share your thoughts if you feel like it. Pre-orders are now open for a vinyl version of the last Armageddon soundtrack, which I believe was an RPG released for Japanese PCs, as well as the PC Engine CD, and I think even the NES. But this soundtrack is based on the X68K version and is completely redone based on new masters. It's not based on the previous CD version of it, and it will include two remix tracks as well. So if this is a game that uh, you enjoyed, or at the very least a soundtrack you enjoyed, the price is about 55 bucks, and it should ship by summertime this year, or I guess next year. We're, we're right on the end of 2022, so summer of 2023. So if you're a fan of the soundtrack and you like collecting stuff on vinyl, definitely check out the links in Crystal's post. There should be stores available all over the world that you're able to pick this one up on, including just Amazon Japan if you prefer. There's a new open source IR light gun project called Devastar, which looks really interesting. The basic overview of it is that it requires you to put four infrared receivers around whatever monitor you're using, which could be CRT or flat panel, doesn't really matter. And it should be able to interface into original consoles as well as emulation, which is really interesting because this is kind of a a very cool way to approach this because you could have this set up and maybe build in some Mr. Integration or even have a little controller adapter so you could plug it directly into different consoles. The Shiro crew have posted a very awesome and detailed write-up about it and even have a video showing it working on a Sega Saturn emulating the stunner. Now, the project is still very much a work in progress and the developer, Greg Gallardo, Greg Gallardo, I'm very sorry, everybody knows I'm terrible at pronunciations. Please correct me, Greg. Uh, but the developer is had started working on it back in 2019 and is really trying to tweak it and getting the latency down and being able to emulate it on different platforms. And I just think this is absolutely awesome and very exciting. Um, they show it working on the Genesis via a menacer uh, or emulating a menacer. Uh, the Master System Light Phaser, an SNES Super Scope, a USB mouse, the Sega Saturn Stunner, and the Atari XG1. So basically, this is kind of, the developer is really attacking this towards the console side of things, uh, it seems like, before emulation, which I just think is great. I think that plugs a pretty big hole in light gun emulation these days. And I'm really interested to see where the project could could kind of evolve into. If you want to know more info about it, please check out the post where they had an interview with the developer, and I'm definitely going to be keeping a very close eye on this and hopefully be able to test one myself because I'm a giant fan of light gun games. But as anybody that's been following my weird and sometimes very boring and nerdy live streams knows that I've actually been having some trouble with some light gun games on some CRTs even as well. And it makes sense. We're using 30-year-old light guns. You know, the, the TVs, the CRTs themselves might be aging. Some might have other issues. So I would really love a way to be able to set this up and just not worry about it again. And I'd even love a way to have a brand new light gun, whether it's an IR-based one or, or anything else, that's not very much latency that we could just start using with all of these. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, share your opinions, of course, if, uh, if you think I'm thinking about this from the wrong point of view. But 
rather than trying to hunt down a single light gun for every console, making sure it works, making sure your TV is working, having something like this with some controller adapters, I think would be a very cool option, depending on your setup. There are some of us who just really want all original everything sometimes, which is totally fine. But thanks very much to Greg for working on this, and hopefully I'd be able to demo it you know, in the near future. Jimmy Hopper recently found footage of an SNES game or Super Famicom game that was never released. It ended up being canceled. So some quick background, Jimmy has been doing a video series on old VHS tapes that he found that have different commercials or game footage or promos on them. And I think I talked about that a few months ago. I talked about the first video in the series and there's been a few since then. And in this one, Jimmy found footage on one of these VHS tapes where the game Vorg was was advertised, but that game had never been released. So I wanted to talk about it here, both because any video game historians or fans of stuff like this would probably find it interesting. And Jimmy did put the full rip of the promo on this video as well. But also, does anybody have a ROM for this? Could we spread the word? Is this something that Hidden Palace has been working on and maybe they're just getting some assets together? Obviously a massive fan of all of their work as well. Uh, is this something the Video Game History Foundation is, knows something about? Because maybe the game's awesome, maybe the game's gonna be terrible, but I think it's really cool when we discover these things and get to experience them for the first time. And you know, we have found some games where I was able to get the ROM, play it and go, Oh, that's why this was canceled. That makes sense. But there's also been some other really awesome ones as well. So if you're a fan of this stuff, please check out Jimmy's post and the video if you'd like. Uh, Jimmy always does a good job summarizing everything in the, the post as well. And of course, if you're a fan of Jimmy's work, please consider supporting him on Patreon so that we could continue funding cool stuff like this because I just wouldn't, I would have never had the ability to take some Japanese VHS tapes, sort through it, figure out what's on it and categorize it like this. And Jimmy's just killing it. So excellent work, my friend. Over the past month or so, I've been talking about the Candy Cab Coin Button Replacement Project, and I wanted to swing back around with a conclusion and have a little video and overview of what it is. If you don't have a Candy Cab or you don't care, maybe stick around because I think this stuff is interesting, but feel free to skip to the next section if you need to. But basically, this started out as an idea where Tian Fong and I figured out how to take or to unbolt the coin slot on candy cabs and bolt a very easy to make PCB in its place and have you wire it up to your JAMA harness to insert coin one and two, as well as access the menu on both original arcade boards and the Mr. And I assume Raspberry Pi based solutions as well. I don't have any here to test anymore, but I loved the project. I thought it was great, super cheap, super easy to wire up, but that top PCB wasn't the nicest looking thing. It was functional and I thought that was great and I was happy with it. However, Joe aka Midgeek Crisis had that very cool 3D print design that made it look like a coin slot. And if you go back to some of the previous roundups, I've been using JLC PCB to print these and to kind of figure out which one was better for me to use or not. And I wanted to officially share the link to Joe's design as well as kind of show an overview of it. I also am trying to take this opportunity to leverage some social media services just to get the word more out about what we do, because that's one of the most challenging things about about basically my job here at Retro RGB is letting people know what it is that we do. So basically, I'm hoping to get this info out, blasting it across all social media platforms just to show people, you know, maybe support so that more of these free designs could be released and also 
please check out all of the amazing developers that I showcase. Because, you know, while Joe's built a pretty decent following, hopefully with all of us retweeting, a lot more people could see the work that he's done. That he's done. So it's kind of the point to all of this, but I really liked it. I showed uh, in the just two minute video on social media or one minute cut down where you had to on some of those platforms, how I installed it. The only thing I didn't show that I thought you all might think, think was kind of funny here is since JLC PCB gave me that coupon to make some of these, I bought the very expensive metal version of it, but you can't heat up the insert and jam it into the metal version. So I couldn't figure out how exactly I was supposed to do it. So I just used epoxy. I dipped those plastic screws in epoxy, stuck them in, and I just kind of sat there while I was working on a project, making sure that, you know, the two screws stayed straight for about 15, 20 minutes. Came back about six hours later and they were in and that's it. But that's also how I figured out to cut the ends off of the plastic screws, because the other reason it took so long to get this post out is this entire time I've been trying to fumble with having all of the washers and the PCB on the screws and then lining them up. But then you have to cut the screws down because if they're too long and then doing it this way, I realized you don't need to do that at all. <laughs> that's one of the many reasons I said to get plastic screws is so you could trim them if you need to. So. Hopefully uh, you all could enjoy laughing at me for that silly mistake, but also benefit from the fact that I just showed a very easy way to install these. So as always, thanks so much to Joe for releasing this design for free for anybody to print. Thanks for uh, thanks to T for suffering through all of my annoying middle of the night. Dude, we should do this ideas because I, I really do think this all of this stuff will benefit people with candy cabs. It's a no cut mod. It adds a ton of functionality, even though it's so basic and silly and it's totally free. All you have to do is download the files and you can make your own and you know, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. So if you have any other ideas about this, please let me know. Uh, I thought this, I, I feel like the design's finished now, but I don't know. Every time I say that another amazing member of the community steps up and does something different. So please check out the, this post, the original post, and then this instructional video on whichever social media platform you prefer in order to uh, to see this and hopefully get it installed in your candy cab. Mike Chi just released firmware version 3.0 for the RetroTINK 5X that adds a few more features, lowers the latency even more, and has some tweaks to it. So uh, I'm very excited to talk about this. I do want to very politely, but, you know, but forcefully remind everybody that Mike didn't have to do any of this. The firmware version 2.0 could have been another product. This firmware version 3.0, he didn't have to do this. He could have just saved everything that he learned and just kept it in the upcoming RetroTank 4K, which once again, part shortage, who knows when that's going to release. It could be 2023, it could be 2024. But point is, Mike still is giving us all of these updates for free. And if you were somebody who bought the launch edition, you now have a ton more functionality than ever thought possible. So I got to just credit where credit's due. However, let's get into the different upgrades and what you benefit by going to this. Uh, first, quick little warning. Every time you update the firmware, you lose all of your saved profiles and everything gets set back to the default factory settings. Shouldn't be too big a deal, but if you have some very important profiles set for your streams, you might want to think about that. But the first thing I want to talk about is that Mike took what he learned from the RetroTINK 4K development and backported it to this, which allowed for lower latency and 
all resolution modes. And on top of that, you could even view how much latency the RetroTank 5X is adding based on input, output resolution, and everything else right in the status menu. So that alone is pretty awesome. You know, it's just, it's one of those things where it's a good peace of mind, right? If you're a pro gamer and you're playing on a low latency flat panel, it's really nice to see that the latency isn't going to mess with your moves, not just be told that through podcasts like this, to be honest with you. So lower latency in all modes, you could view how much it is. That alone is just an awesome upgrade and I'm very thankful that Mike released it. But another thing that people might think is a game changer or you might not care at all, totally fine, but Mike put downscaling back and added a 480i option as well. So very quick backstory, the launch edition, all of the 1.x firmwares of the RetroTINK 5X could downscale 720p and 480p to two, and I think 480i to 240p. And that worked really well, especially with 480p down to 240. You could use the up and down arrows to adjust centering to make sure it looks okay. But with the addition of the 2.0 firmware, there wasn't enough space left in the code. So Mike kind of thought, well, if you still want downscaling, just leave it on the 1.0 firmware because you could always swap back and forth. And for now, let's just kind of leave it out because that wasn't the most used feature. It was something that if you did use it, it was a big deal, but the fact that you didn't have to give it up was a good trade-off. But now it's back and in the main firmware, so you could just use it regularly, but there's some more options. Not only can you go from 720p, 480p, and 480i down to 240p, you could also either pass 480i through or go from 720p and 480p to 480i. So why would you want to do that? Lewis from Zez Retro and I did a whole podcast or a live stream about that. I did a write-up. I talked about it. So here's the basic short version. If you just want to have newer games on CRTs, you might actually benefit from the higher resolution and more data on screen from 480i. So that's a cool thing right there. Now that it's in a low latency mode like this, you could totally have a modern game that is downscaled to this. And also you get to choose your aspect ratios and everything. So that's a pretty cool feature and uh, something that I think a lot of people might want to try out. But also for old TV shows, let's say you got a streaming box that you could just use one of those HDMI splitters that's PS3 compatible and stick one of those into an HDMI to component video converter into the Tink 5X, then go out of the HDMI port to either an HD15 to SCART or another component video output. And now you could watch old TV shows in 480i and you should be able to use some of the, uh, the aspect ratio controls as well. So I think that in itself is another pretty cool feature. Now, I will be honest, no disrespect to Mike, if you're only use for this was to just kind of mess around and watch old TV shows. I wouldn't say go buy a RetroTINK 5X for that, and neither would Mike. <laughs> but if you want to do this as well as all of the other stuff that it adds, then I think this is really awesome. And if you're kind of still confused as to why I'm going off about this, please check the links in this post because I, I link to everything that we talked about um, and all of the different reasons why you might want to do stuff like this. Uh, and also, you could name each of the profiles if you'd like with an on-screen keyboard. So there still aren't profile export and importing, and it probably won't happen with the Tink 5X. That might just be something that happens on whatever the product that comes next is, but it's still pretty cool. And it's still something that, especially if you're a streamer and you're switching games midstream, you don't have to, oh, let me check my notes. What was profile one? What's profile two? You could just kind of go in and hit it. So 
Um, the only thing that was removed was the 1080p min lag modes because those were already rolled in. So there's no reason to just have that be redundant. And the 4K24 mode was removed. But as I proved in the myth busting lag video, uh, you really wouldn't want that in most scenarios anyway, especially for gaming. Now, if for whatever reason you really wanted to use that, you could always go back to one of the older firmwares just to use it. But if you take even a 24 frame per second game that you have and use it in 4K24 mode, you're probably going to get a ton of latency on your flat panel. So if you want to use it for experimenting, just keep the older firmware. And if you want to, uh, if you, you know, if you don't, then it's, it's really not something that you probably miss anyway. So thanks again to Mike for doing this. It's very exciting. Hopefully I could do a, a live stream with it or something, just kind of messing around soon. But if not, it's there for you to try out right now. I recently did an interview with Rich Whitehouse, who is a video game developer, member of the Video Game History Foundation, and the developer of the big PMU, the big PMU, the Atari Jaguar emulator that we recently talked about that could play the entire Atari Jaguar library. And I absolutely loved the conversation. Uh, trigger warning, there was some not so happy stuff we talked about at first about the cancer battle he's going through. However, we, th we think there's a happy ending. You know, fingers crossed, but he looks and sounds good. So hopefully this could be something that uh, he pulls out of pretty quickly. That's all thoughts with Rich on this one, but there was also a whole bunch of happy stuff and a bunch of fun stuff as well. So hopefully you all would give it a chance and stick with it. It was really great hearing directly from a game dev and one with so much experience covering so many different types of, of games and of course video game history. So I, I'm definitely going to call this the first of hopefully multiple interviews with Rich. I didn't want it to drag too long. Also, I didn't want to, uh, I, I didn't want to take up too much of his time while he's still recovering. If you do want to hear more from Rich though, I would definitely check out the other interview he did on Kraz Productions. And, you know, he did cover a lot of the same stuff, obviously, because he's going to talk about the awesome emulator that he did. But for me personally, I, you know, if I'm really interested in somebody's work, I never mind hearing two different opinions or two different perspectives of the same conversation. You know, it's kind of that typical thing where two people asking the same question, you often get two slightly different answers. So uh, if you're uh, if you're into Rich and you want more of them, check out the Crass Productions video as well. As for the one that we did, as always, it is available everywhere that podcasts and videos are found. So just search for Retro RGB White House. And if you want to support all of the work that Rich does, please consider signing up for his Patreon because that's what's going to get the Atari Jaguar emulation to continue as well as some of the other very cool things that he's a part of. So please check that out if you get a chance. A group of Sega Saturn devs have just ported the first couple levels of the 1998 game Unreal to the Sega Saturn. And everything that's involved in this is way too in-depth to get into here. It's just such an amazing feat of, uh, of technical ability. Please check out the Shiro post, and they embedded an awesome video at the end for all of the details. But the basic overview is this is a tech demo of the first two levels of Unreal that was ported over using, the, uh, using developer XL2's custom Saturn engine, and none of the original source code of the game was used. They had to recreate all of it by basically by hand. And not only did they do that, but they also were able to do dynamic 3D stereo sound using the Pony sound driver, which could not have been done using Sega's own sound driver. So this is just one of those things that's like, you know, it, it's ridiculously impressive that 
you were that this group of people was able to use the Saturn to recreate this. Uh, I just it would be absolutely mind blowing if this was released as a game back in the Saturn's era. And it's so cool to see the homebrew community step up. It really just kind of go nuts with stuff like that. So please definitely check out the Shiro video on this and read through their post as well, if that's how you prefer. I know some people prefer videos, some people prefer reading, doesn't really matter. However you prefer, definitely check this thing out because it's just so impressive and it's very, very awesome to see this stuff on the Saturn. So thank you to everybody who does work like this. It's so cool to see and I'm very much looking forward to checking it out myself. Before we go, I just wanted to send a shout out to Lou for all of the amazing work that he's been doing and for keeping all of us in the loop of everything that's been going on in the FPGA homebrew community. He's got videos about Mr. that I talk about here every week, and he's also doing a video about the analog pocket updates. And it's really awesome that somebody would be able to donate their time to do that for us because there's no chance that I would be able to keep up with all of that and do all the other stuff. So while there was, uh, I think Lou may have taken the week off or maybe I just recorded this way too early. Definitely still wanted to send some love his way. Please subscribe to his channel. It's obviously linked here. And of course, and especially thanks to all of you who watch and listen and, and become a part of this awesome stuff that we do. Because, you know, I know it's sometimes weird to explain to people what it is that I do. Like, so you play old video games? It's like, no, it's a, it's a lot bigger than that. And it's a lot more fun than you would think. And none of it could happen without any of you. So thank you for a pretty amazing 2022. Um, definitely a lot of very cool memories this year. And let's, there's going to be some fun changes next year. Nothing, nothing negative, I hope, but we're going to start with some new thumbnails and a new way. At least I'm going to have a new way of approaching social media so that hopefully I could uh, do a better job tagging stuff and reach more people because the two things that I often hear, the, the two things I most often hear when I meet somebody at an expo or something for the first time is, it's usually, do you have any idea how much money I've spent because of you? <laughs> Which, sorry, but I love this stuff too. But also it's, I, I wish we could have found your site sooner. You know, whether it's they had to buy crap stuff first before they realized the good stuff was here or they didn't even realize that they had the ability to do some of the stuff that we do. So I'm, I'm going to try to work really hard this year to get the website uh, back up into, um, you know, b back up to speed so that people could click through and, and know exactly what they're looking for without just going through the news articles. And I also want to try to get get out to more people. So if I have to suffer through some boring social media stuff, bear with me retweet and repost where necessary. And I'm always listening to feedback. I just want to get better. Even if, uh, you know, even if it's hard to hear sometimes, I really do just want to improve. So thank you all so much. Thanks to everybody who supports on Patreon and Floatplane, because that's really what's keeping all of this going. And I wish all of you a wonderful new year and a great 2023.